Welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Arvon. Do you have a story in you or want to test the waters of writing poetry or non-fiction? Maybe you already write and write well, but would like to try a new form or genre, pick up some new tricks. Enter Arvon. Arvon run a yearly programme of in-person and online events, from five-day residential writing weeks that take place at one of their three writing houses to pay-what-you-can online events and online masterclasses that delve deep into craft over the course of two hours. Their courses cover everything from commercial, genre and experimental fiction to poetry, screenwriting and even songwriting. They've been running creative writing courses up and down the UK since 1968. In that time, their prize-winning tutors, many of whom may be some of your favourite writers, have unlocked the creativity of over 100,000 people. Many have gone on to be published authors and career writers themselves. But actually, it's not about that. Writing with Arvon is about finding a supportive community of fellow writers, making like-minded connections that last a lifetime. By signing up for a course, you don't just get an acclaimed author as your tutor. You also gain a writing group to bounce ideas off long after the course is finished. So whether it's a cosy stay at one of their writing houses in Devon, West Yorkshire or Sleepy Shropshire, or a course you can do from the comfort of your sofa, Arvon works around your creative life. Visit arvon.org slash courses, that's A-R-V-O-N dot org slash courses, to learn more and give yourself the gift of writing. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the drinks writer, Henry Jeffries. We spoke to Henry about his early career working as a book publicist, his debut book, Empire of Booze, and his latest book, Vines in a Cold Climate. We recorded this podcast back in August, before the allegations about Russell Brand were published. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Henry, to Always Take Notes. It's lovely to have you on the show. Could we start with your latest book, Finds in a Cold Climate? Where did the idea come from and when did you start reporting it? Oh, well, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a, it's a great honour to be here, especially with the calibre of some of the guests. So uh, thank you. The book actually was not my idea. It came from a chap called Derek Wyatt, who is editor-at-large for Atlantic Books. And he was formerly MP for Faversham, the town I live in, and an international rugby player. So he's had quite an interesting career. And he phoned me up one day in 2021 and said, do you want to do a book about English wine? And actually, I didn't really want to do a book about English wine. I thought the industry sounded a bit a bit corporate, a bit staid. And Oz Clark, you know, probably the best known wine writer in the country, had just released a book about English wine. So I thought, you know, he's got that one quite sewn up. But I was, you know, intrigued and kind of flattered that someone of this Derek stature had got in touch. So I started kind of, you know, reading and talking to people. And I went to a wine lunch and I sat next to this English winemaker called Adrian Pike from Westwell Wines. In fact, he's the man who was at my book launch last night providing the wines. And he was just so candid. When I say candid, I mean incredibly rude 
about various people in the industry. And I just thought, you know, so-and-so is a wanker. So-and-so treats his staff, his workers abysmally. So-and-so makes terrible wine. So-and-so is a crook. And I thought, do you know what? There's a whole story here that no one is telling. All you all you read are these celebratory accounts of English wine, how it's all wonderful. And actually, there's a kind of journalistic story about kind of conflict, about big egos, you know, sort of the sort of there's a lot of meat for a writer to get his teeth into. So, yeah, that that's so I thought, you know what, I'd be a fool not to do this. Um, I, so, I, so I said yes and started work on it. I was reading your piece where you were you were talking about exactly that thing, and I, I liked your line that it was it was all a bit branded gilet and golf umbrella, which I thought was was excellent. But I was also interested by your point that like this this doesn't happen in France, right? That if you're trying to talk to big French wine producers, there's like a PR on the left of you, everything's very constrained, that kind of thing. Although you, I suppose you did have that line in the introduction about how you know you were at this event in 2017 where like a French wine overlord just went completely off piste and things like that. I mean, how how different is the the kind of access story in England compared to other parts of the wine writing world? Well, I, I'm at a huge disadvantage as a wine writer in not really speaking another language. So I can speak, I can order food in a restaurant in France or Spain. I can, you know, chat about wine, but I can't do, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't, really interview someone I, I, and actually I can't interview someone in French or Spanish so the kind of interviews I can do are only with bigger producers because or generally only with bigger producers because they're going to be the people who speak English they're the people who are going to be quite sort of PR facing as it were so you know if you talk to people who are experts in say the wines of the Rhone they tell similar stories you know there's people hate each other and there's rivalries and there's all this exciting stuff going on and people being terribly indiscreet over long drunken lunches. But I don't really have access to that because I don't have the language. So my experience with a lot of wine companies has been through the kind of intermediary of of PR. So you perhaps, you're not really getting the full story. Whereas champagne is obviously it's big business. It's like, it's more like fashion or whiskey or something like that. So it's very hard to get someone in Champagne to say something interesting. But happily, Pierre-Emmanuel Tattinger, whose family owned Tattinger, it's a family business, and he could just say what he likes. So, <laughs> you know, there are, there are always mavericks who who have a story. But yeah, just to kind of sum up, it was just wonderful that the English producers haven't reached the stage where they are cautious about what they say in contrast to sort of bigger continental producers and certainly American producers. A lot of American producers are very, very careful about what they say. Obviously, climate is in the title of your book. To what extent is the story of English wine a story of, of climate change? It's kind of everything and nothing, if if that makes sense. So without the changing climate, the idea of making burgundy standard chardonnay in essex would be impossible so you know even in the 90s it would have been incredibly hard to ripen chardonnay enough to make a good still wine but at the same time for me that's not a particularly interesting story i i i'm interested in people i'm actually not that interested in 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 in, in science as much um 
So the change of climate is important, but without people thinking it could be done, without the ambition, without the sort of determination, it, 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 would, it wouldn't have helped. And though the climate has changed a lot and you get much warmer summers, you do get still get summers like we're having at the moment, which are very, very challenging. And there's also England is always going to be damper than Champagne, than somewhere with a, a continental climate. So so, so the cl- climate is, is a massive part of the story, but I don't think you can discount just the kind of scale of the change in people's ambitions. I think that's the other half of the story. And could you tell us as well about your decision to to focus in on a number of characters rather than attempting to have this this kind of Olympian overview of everything that's going on? And I, I was wondering, perhaps if you could tell us about one of these guys who seems quite intriguing, Chris Wilson. So this former tabloid journalist who um, now makes 5,000 bottles of wine a year in his basement. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 got, I started, I mean, I didn't really know anything about English wine. And I started sort of visiting local producers in this rather haphazard way, talking to people I'd been told to talk to. And it very quickly became clear that to do a portrait of what English wine would be like now would be almost impossible because there's just too much going on. If you read a book about, you don't really get a book about all of France's wine, you get a book about Burgundy or or the Rhone, and to try and encompass everything that was going on in England, it just I think it would have it would have been possible, but it would be a very it would have just been a very broad book, and you wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to bring out people's personal stories. So in the end, I just found certain people who sounded interesting and got talking to them, and then they referred me to other people, and then I got to the stage where I thought. I have so 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 I kind of divided up producers like is this a big family business is this a sparkling wine producer is this a maverick is this a a tiny producer like Chris Wilson who who are so I kind of divided them into groups and then thought right I've got enough money men enough city boys don't want to talk to any more city boys I don't have enough single mothers farming a few hectares in Kent I need to find someone like that. So it was sort of trying to find emblematic types and then making sure that I had enough variety of people in the book. And then once I had all those stories, basically try not to find any more stories and work out how to turn all their stories into one story. So occasionally people would say, you've got to go and see so-and-so in Devon. And I'd just be like, ah, I've got, you know, I've already got too many stories. I don't, I need to organise them rather than find new ones. But people like Chris Wilson were a gift. He's, uh, he used to write for The Mirror. He's, he was a music journalist. He was, uh, he was on the racing desk. And I'd known him a long time, not not well, but see him at wine tastings. And I was sort of dimly aware that he had a degree in winemaking from Plumpton College, which is the sort of, the, well, it's the only wine school in England, just near Brighton. And he sent me a bottle of his wine, he, which he'd made in the basement of an old windmill in Cambridge from bought-in grapes. So he sort of goes out to Essex or Norfolk and stuff and buys grapes and it was a Chardonnay, a still Chardonnay. And it was just phenomenal. And I just thought, you know, because when a journalist gets in touch and says they've made a wine, you think this is going to be terrible. And it was, it was it just kind of mind-blowingly good. And even my wife, who's a Californian and very sceptical about English wine, she was like, this is 
this is great. So I went to visit him and it was just a room about the size of my basement here, absolutely tiny, where he gets his children to tread the grapes and, you know, just kind of brilliant stuff like that, but makes these very, very elegant, classically styled wines that if you tried them, you'd think, oh, this is probably a small producer in Burgundy. So very, very impressive. And just great fun to have someone like that. It makes, you know, no, no, no gilets, no golf umbrellas, you know, <laughs> really fun. Good idea for him to have sort of cheap labour as well that also wears out the kids. Exactly. Yeah. Top, top parenting tip. You mentioned the ambition and vision of all these different winemakers, but what were some of the other themes that sort of transcended this cast of characters? I think a lot of them, a lot of the kind of richer ones and this might sound a little bit like going off topic, but I think a lot of it was connected with the financial situation, the strange financial situation we've had globally since, well, definitely since 2008, but but even earlier, where you have these incredibly low interest rates and you have the kind of financialization of the British economy. So you have these people with unprecedented amounts of wealth that they've made, you know, doing things I don't really understand in the city, not knowing quite what to do with all their wealth. So before they may have put them in a bank or put them in shares or something, but they wouldn't have got a very good return on that. So you had a really unprecedented amount of money looking for a home between like 2000 and the present day. And obviously these people, you know, they're... They, they loved the good life. They drank a lot of good wine when they were in the city. And their immediate thing was put it into wine. And I think that's a situation that's now coming to an end. You know, the economy is not doing so well. The financial services, for various reasons, are not doing so well. Interest rates are up. So it was So it was this sort of kind of golden time which I don't. So I think there's. A, it was really interesting just talking to like people from like Rathfinney and Danbury Ridge and stuff, and they all had a very similar story behind them. And it was just made a lot of money, and then thought I need a something to do with it that kind of a, an investment that will give a return, but it doesn't need to give a return for a long time because I've got a lot of money. So <laughs> there was that kind of link that links them together and then the smaller producers I don't really know I think it was a lot of them had had traveled a lot so they'd made what they'd been in South Africa or California or Beaujolais or Alsace and stuff and then previously they would have dispersed around the world but because of the changing climate and also because of actually I tell you what the thing that really links everyone together is Plumpton College near Brighton almost every single winery in the country has someone who trained there uh, it was, it's an agricultural college that set up a, a wine school in the 1980s and it started off with just one man a shed a few barrels and it's now a world-class wine school so yeah it was really interesting there's a whole group of really, really good winemakers who all graduated in 2013, 2014. And they're the kind of young Turks of the industry who are doing really exciting things. So I'd say it's the sort of financial situation and Plumpton College. Those are the two threads that run throughout the book. 
Interesting question. Thank you. We wanted to come back to the new book um, in due course, but just rolling back now, you studied English and classics at university. Had you, before that, in childhood, always had an interest in books and writing, or where did it come from? I've always loved reading, and as a child, I used to be very into writing poetry, so I used to enter those kind of Cadbury's poetry competitions and stuff, but, you know, and I always used to get a letter saying, well done, but I never actually made, they used to publish a book of children's poetry every year, I never, never made it in. And then I went to university and I must say I, I I was at Leeds and I kind of sort of hated it. I didn't like the way it was taught. I didn't like the way that there was so much critical theory. And I kind of lost my love for reading and writing over three years or so at university. And then when I graduated, I kind of almost deliberately went and kind of looked out, sort of had to train myself to enjoy reading again. I went to Oxfam Books and I'd buy novels by like Anthony Burgess or John le Carre or Paul Oster or, you know, these kind of people, you know, sort of good, solid, I suppose slightly middle-brow fiction and sort of once again discovered this joy of reading that I'd rather lost when I was a student. But I never really used to write you know, I wrote essays at university, most of which were terrible. You know, I was not a particularly good student. I didn't really understand theory. And I just kind of, you know, I was I, I must have been awful to teach. But around 2005, some friends of mine, so ex-Leeds University people who are now in London, set up this website called the London Review of Breakfasts, which was a sort of piss take of the London Review of Books, and where you reviewed CAFs under silly names like Malcolm Eggs or Blake Pudding or I, mean, I was Blake Pudding or Dr. Sigmund Fried. So, you know, you, you get almond croissant. So, you you know, you get the you get the gist. And I started doing it and I kind of assumed this slightly Michael Winner-esque persona. I don't know, maybe, maybe younger listeners will need reminding who Michael Winner is. He was a film director who used to write this incredibly pompous but incredibly funny, sort of accidentally funny restaurant column for the Sunday Times. And I used to write them in this style, assume, pretending I was this sort of bon viva visiting cafes in Peckham or Bethnal Green or something. And I just loved it. It was just, I kind of found a voice. And I just, I used to do, I, I think I did about 40 of them. And it made me so happy. And then a bit after that, I met someone from the Telegraph. But by then I was working in, in PR for books and I had lunch with the literary editor of the Telegraph and I was trying to tell him about the books that I wanted him to review, which I, again, I wasn't very good at. And he said, you know, you're not very good at persuading me to read, to, to review these books, but you do seem to have an interesting, so you do have something to say. So do you want to do some paperback reviews for me? So I said, yes. So I started doing paperback reviews for the telegraph which was back in the day when th that kind of thing actually paid quite well and then it just continued from there so sort of accidentally i'd refound this kind of love of words that i'd had when i was 8 in my 20s and 30s so it was a very very accidental haphazard journey into becoming a writer how did you balance the writing, the freelance writing and the work in publishing? Was it a case of doing it in your spare time? It was. And I used to write under a pseudonym as well. 
So not only Blake Pudding, but I wrote under the name Henry Castiglione. Castiglione is my mother's maiden name. I thought it's a brilliant pen name and actually I wish I'd stuck with it. But I just used to write, you know, I, I didn't have any children. I didn't have any responsibilities. So I just used to, you know, write at the weekend, in the evenings. It was it was actually a very easy, easy thing to balance. Could you tell us about the, the work you did on Russell Brand's book back in Ooh, 2007? Because yeah. I, I really enjoyed this uh, piece that you wrote for The Fence. I remember reading it at the time of publication a couple of years ago and then revisited it in the preparation for this book. Um, so to set the scene, this is 2007. Russell Brand is the kind of peak Russell Brand moment. And then you're, you're responsible for publicity for his bookie work. Is that correct? Yeah, God, you know, it was it was really cathartic actually writing that article in the fence because I, I it was it was actually a very very unpleasant experience, and I I wouldn't say it gave me nightmares, but it definitely kind of you know reverberated in my brain for a long time afterwards. I was at Hodder and Stoughton Publishers, and I was head of publicity for Scepter, which was the literary imprint, and I used to work with lovely authors like David Mitchell. You know, the book, the Booker Prize, shortlisted novelist, not the comedian, Tom Keneally, Siri Hustvet, you know, these very intellectually heavyweight, lovely people. But they sort of said, you know, you need to do some other books. So they said, you're going to do Russell Brand. We think you'll get on really well with him. And as you said, he was in his sort of imperial phase then. He was like the most famous person in the country. And he would, he'd given up drugs and alcohol, I think, a couple of years before. But he had a new drug, which was himself. And he was just, like, mainlining himself the whole time. And it was just, it was just awful. It was his agent, who was called Nick Lennon, would just phone me up. And he'd always start with, Russell's not happy. Nick Lennon was from Manchester. So that's my Manchester accent. Russell's not Russell's not happy. And I'd be like, oh God. I'd be like, he doesn't like his driver. And I'd be like, oh, okay. What's wrong with the driver? He goes, he wants Keith. I'd be like, who's Keith? He goes, Keith's the cabbie he had yesterday. So I had to go and find Keith. I had to like phone up the radio cab company and say, can we have Keith to collect Russell? And it was like that every hour, every day for months. So it just, I just kind of almost developed like a sort of nervous tick whenever the phone rang, because I think it thought it would be Russell's agent. And Russell was very friendly initially. And then I think he decided that I wasn't being su- sufficiently sycophantic and then cut me out completely. It wouldn't have anything to do with me and I had to do everything through Nick. And I just, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. And the book was a massive bestseller. He he was mobbed at every signing that he did and I couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't enjoy the success. You need a really thick skin to be a good PR, and I'm not thick skinned at all. But then, when I revisited it, you know, I, you know, I, I, so I hated him for a long time. I used to see him on television and just say that wanker, you know. And I used to read his awful articles in the Guardian and just think, you know, you can't write, you know. And then, and then I kind of writing that article, revisiting it, and I just thought, well. You know, of course he was like that. He was the rock star of comedy. What do you expect? You know, you can't expect him to be a, a menchie old author like Tom Keneally or something. His job was to be, you know, the biggest, biggest dick in comedy. And he played that part admirably. So I kind of look back now and think it was probably me who was unable to deal with it. I should have, I, I probably sh- shouldn't have been doing it. But 
you need someone really thick-skinned who is going to just do it very professionally. And I had been used to being on very friendly terms with everyone I work with and couldn't, could I, I didn't know how to deal with him. So I just, so I now think, you know, he's obviously gone down quite a strange path recently, but I just, you know, I don't, I don't look at him with the same degree of dislike that I used to, oddly enough. Obviously, that was an exception. So for any listeners who aren't familiar with what sort of publicist at a publishing house does on a day-to-day basis, could you give a a brief overview of of what your job would normally entail when it wasn't wrangling Keith and Russell Brand? Right. (laughs) Well, the job has changed a huge amount. When I was in PR, which was from 2000 until 2015, so a long time, there used to be like eight people on the Guardian books desk, five people on the Telegraph books desk. So you'd spend an awful lot of time just on the phone to someone like Sam Leith or going out for lunch with Paul Leite from the Guardian. And so it was actually an incredibly social business. And there'd be a party, someone would be having a party like every night, a book launch or something. There was, I think, more money sloshing around in publishing in those days. So until about 2009, there was an awful lot of, just a lot of fun. A lot of, the social side was brilliant. And obviously there was a lot of boring stuff like setting up bookshop signings in in, in Didsbury or something like that. A lot of the kind of nitty gritty of making sure that someone's author tour around the country didn't go, you know, which again was the side of the business I wasn't particularly good at. But the hobnobbing with journalists... Yeah, I was good at that. I liked that. But with the decline of newspapers, the sort of rise of the internet, which really kicked in around, I think, about 2009, that side became less important. And it was more about communities, bloggers, kind of stuff that I actually wasn't very good at, stuff that social media. And I sort of realised by about 2012 that I'd kind of had it. I was head of publicity at One World, this little publishers who got on to be very successful. But I kind of knew that I was finished. You know, I needed to find something else to do. So I thought, what else can I do? I will become a writer, which was, you know, a huge leap. That actually I thought was was my next question. How did you go about making the the segue from this job within publishing to to being a published author yourself? And so the the journey leading up to Emperor of Booze and 2016? Well, I, I was, after I got made redundant from Hodder and Stoughton in 2009, just before I got married, and which was really quite terrifying timing. And I probably should not have gone back into publishing, but I did. But I, I, I got taken out for a coffee by Matthew Hamilton, who is a, actually a very, very successful agent now, um, who I've known a long time. I used to work with his wife, uh, Jocasta Hamilton. And he took me out for, for, for a coffee and said, I bet you've got tons of ideas for books. What do, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? And I told him a few ideas and I came up with Empire of Booze and he said, brilliant, let's do it. So I came up with a book proposal, sent it out to dozens of publishers and then they all sort of said, you know, it's a good, good idea, but we'll pass. Um, and actually looking back, the proposal wasn't very good. It was too dry. It wasn't funny enough. Didn't bring out the big characters. Um, but I knew it was a good idea. So I sort of simplified it, made it funnier, and took it to Unbound in 2013, 2014. And they said, great. And, 
you know, I, I don't know if your listeners know about Unbound, but they're a crowdsourcing publisher. So you have to basically sell however many books it is up front to pay for the publishing costs. And then it gets published more or less like a conventional book. Mm-hmm. And it got funded and it got published in 2016 and it won a few awards. And so 2015, by the, when I finished the book, I just thought, you know what? I'm not going anywhere in publishing. I will try to become a freelance writer. So yeah, it was it was just as the book was published that I thought I can't I can't I can't read really I can't really work in publishing anymore. So I so I left. How did you go about making those contacts in the world of journalism? Well, this was the thing I'd already made them. So I I'd spent my days talking to Paul Lady from the Guardian and when I was having lunch with Paul, he'd say, "Oh, we've just been sent this book by Eric Asimov, the New York Times wine writer, do you want to review it? So I was like, okay. So I already had all the contacts. And in fact, I remember talking to Mary Wakefield when I still worked in PR. She was features editor at The Spectator. And I was trying to get an author to write a piece for her. And she said, do you know, I don't like this author's writing, but I like yours. And I thought, said, okay, well, and I said, well, I've got this idea. And she goes, and she did it. It was published the next week. So I just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm already there in terms of contacts. I just need to uh, do a bit more. We are thrilled to announce the publication of Always Take Notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers. The book, edited by the two of us, features contributions from almost 100 past guests on the podcast. It's a distillation of the wit and wisdom we've heard over the past six years. The book offers, we think, frank and entertaining guidance on writing in particular and living a creative life in general. It answers questions such as, where do the best ideas come from? How do you stay motivated? What does it take to become a published author? And how do you actually make money from your writing? Published by Ithaca Press, Always Take Notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers is available now in all good bookshops. We hope you enjoy reading it. I saw an interesting other line that you'd, you'd written saying, when I first started working on Empire of Booze, narrative nonfiction was all the rage. I like this line, you know, the kind of thing, how one man's quest for cheese conquered a kingdom and changed the world. But by the time it came out, such books were dead. And then you also make the point about it coming out at the same time as, as the Brexit referendum. Could you talk maybe a little bit about that, but also more broadly about this idea of kind of fashion and trend within publishing, which must have been something also that you'd experienced when you were working in-house. But what do you think, you know, drives those perceived changes of fashion and, and how real are they? Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very good point. I think those narrative non-fiction books, you know, the sort of Cod or Nathaniel's Nutmeg Longitude were massive when I was in the sort of noughties. Um, and so I definitely saw my book fitting into that. And also... Matthew, my um, agent, was kind of trying to push my book into that kind of straitjacket where actually it didn't really work. So he was trying to have like one character that went through the whole book. And I think what happens is that publishers, God bless them, are not very imaginative people. In fact, they're deeply conservative. So they would always rather do a book like that one that sold. And what they do is they gradually do less and less exciting versions of those brilliant books until the readership is just tired or whether the readership is tired or whether the the bookshops are tired or the newspapers are tired and don't cover them anymore 
it, it's hard to say, but I think publishers just wear out these ideas. They get authors to do sequels for books that they shouldn't do sequels for. They do Me Too books that just aren't aren't very good. And actually, my book, if I had written it as a narrative nonfiction book, like COD or something, probably wouldn't have been very good either. So I think there is, the, the, the trends are real. And I think they're caused by publishers just killing the golden goose, I think. And I think it was a similar story with travel writing, which was, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was nothing bigger than travel writing, was there? You know, kind of William Dalrymple and those sort of people, Paul Theroux. And then I think there were just too many. And then they became very gimmicky, didn't they? You know, like Round Island with a fridge, all that sort of stuff. And I think after a while, people people switch off. So I think the trends the trends are real. Can we talk a little bit about the sort of reception of the book? I was interested to to ask you about how winning the Fortman Mason Award, which I think is seen as like the best sort of awards for food and drink writing, how that affected the book, and then also appearing on on the rest is history. Could you talk about those those two pieces? Yes. Well, winning the Fortman Mason was absolutely wonderful because I'd been nominated previously. I used to go every year and drink free champagne and just have a riot. To be honest, I would say it had very, very little direct effect on my bottom line. I didn't, I didn't get many people, I didn't think anyone getting in touch saying, you've won this award, you could now have a column with us or, you know, we want some stuff. I think it works in more nebulous ways. So my agent can go, he's award winning. He won this or this thing, you know, it, it, it's very hard to quantify, but it's not like winning the Booker. You know, you don't go off on a, a sort of tour and get invited to literary festivals around the world. It's it's it, it's a very much an industry award that's recognised by the food and drink industry, but doesn't really, I don't think it really, I'm, I'm afraid to say, resonate that much outside quite a small world. In contrast, the rest is history. I've never known anything like it. I, 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 I was a fan from the beginning, and they were doing a series of of shows on Portugal, and they said, "Oh, port! We don't know anything about port. Maybe we should do something on port." So I emailed the producer and said, "You know, have me on." And then I was amazed that they said, "Okay, yeah," and I went on, and the book immediately sold out. It went to sort of number very, very high on Kindle. It took the publishers much longer than they should have done, unbound to reprint. But when they did, it sold out again and then reprinted again. So it's been, I don't know how many thousands of copies it sold since then. I've been invited on five, six, I mean, so many podcasts. I had, you know, people writing to me. I've had people coming up to me like in the playground, like when I collect my daughter from school, like, are you, I heard you on The Rest is History. I can't believe it's you. So it, I, I, I would go as far to say that it has, if not transformed my career, it has done incredible things for my visibility as a writer in a way that winning an award didn't do. You'll just have to brace yourself for the overwhelming tide of always take notes publicity that's going to gonna soup over your head. Well, this is what I'm hoping for. Yeah, this is this is what I'm hoping for next. I'm going to call my publisher now. I was wondering if we could ask this a slightly more conceptual question. We had Jay Rayner on the podcast a few years ago, and his kind of big thing about food writing is it's not about the food, it's about the writing. Like, you know, he, he, he was very amusing about this, but he said, you know, if you want 
something like Rachel, you know, if you want to use the word scrumptious, you shouldn't be in this game or, or some, something like that. Or you shouldn't do it because you, you really like your dinner. I mean, I refer listeners to, to the original episode. But his point was like, it has to be the writing that is the thing and the writing that you're interested in. And, you know, the writing has to be entertaining and that kind of thing. And the subject matter is, in a sense, secondary to the treatment thereof. What are your thoughts on on that whole piece? Yeah, well, I, I agree with him absolutely. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying how when you read the restaurant reviews in the new york times it's for when you what if where you're deciding to go to eat out you don't read many english or london newspaper restaurant reviewers to decide where to eat out you, when aa gill was alive you didn't read aa gill to decide where to eat out you read him to be entertained you know the same with jay rayner or giles corin grace what's her name grace dent grace dent how could i forget grace dent who is i think just fabulously funny in writing and in person. And the weird thing is, is that there's almost no wine writers who are doing that. And I kind of spotted that back in 2011. Most wine writers are recommending wine. They're sort of going, they're sort of like five wines to have with dinner. You know, you should try this wine. It tastes of peaches and melons and stuff. And I just thought, why is no one trying to be the A.A. Gill of wine writing? So that was kind of, I saw a, a niche there. And I suppose the problem was, is that no one wanted to publish someone who wanted to be the AA kill of wine writing. So it took, so I still, so I find my, found myself having to do those six rosés to have with your, you know, when the sun comes out kind of columns, even though I didn't really want to write those columns. I wanted to kind of write about some incident that happened to me while I'd had too much rosé. So it's, so it's, it's, I completely agree with you. And, and that's what I've tried to do in all my books is to bring out people's stories, bring out personal stories, make it about, you know, jokes, funny things, incidents, conflict, and really not about wine. But the problem is that most editors kind of want wine columns to be about wine. So you have to sort of, wine writers are often in a straitjacket. In fact, one of them was, who's quite a well-known one on a Sunday broadsheet, a Saturday broadsheet was saying to me that they don't let her put her personality personality into it they, they just want her to recommend some wine um so it's really hard and in fact i was talking to someone who works at a very very well-known wine website and he said the best red stuff aren't the color pieces they're the scores you know 17 out of 20 95 out of 100 so that's kind of what wine nerd readership want they want the they want the scores, you know, they want to cut to the chase, whereas my style is all preamble. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with Jay Rayner. It's just a very hard thing to do in wine because most people don't want that. Have you also then sort of consciously avoided using wine terminology and sort of insider lingo? Or have you found that you can balance that accessible style with, I don't know, things, a particular terminology that, that wine aficionados use? I try really hard to to keep the jargon out of it. So there's all wine people are always talking about like malolactic fermentation or schist soils and stuff. And I I know it means almost nothing to me, and it means no, almost nothing to a general readership. And my day job is working for a whiskey company, a whiskey retailer, writing copy for them. And I spend my whole time trying to take the jargon out. You know, just take. You sometimes find people using skew. SKU, which means sales 
something unit, meaning an item. And it's like, just say item or bottle or brand or something. But I suppose it's the same with all professions, isn't it? You know, there is a kind of jargon spoken by the the cognoscenti. But I think it's really, really important to try and keep... Now, obviously, you have to, you know, if you're explaining something technical, you may have to use technical terms. But I try really hard to keep them to a minimum. And it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. So be as open or as, as guarded as you're comfortable being. But, you know, how, since you've gone freelance, has it worked in terms of keeping body and soul together and then when you're doing this day job for a, a whiskey retailer how do you kind of walk the ethical line between you know working in the industry and being someone who writes about the industry as well yeah that's two, two really really good questions i don't want to go into too much money about finances and in fact one of the answers to one of your questions was about money but i will say i've been very very lucky i if i hadn't bought a flat in london with help from with a deposit from my father none of this would have been possible if i was having to spend what however much people spend now 1200 pound 1500 pounds a month on rent i couldn't do it I, I i would have had to stay working in publishing or something like that so i can't really state how invaluable that was especially when interest rates went right down and suddenly my mortgage was you know, just a kind of pittance. So that's been really helpful. And I and I know that that's one of the things that people always get quite upset about when they talk about diversity in journalism, about how working class people can't go back in because it is so hard to live in London on a journalist's wage if you don't have somewhere secure to live. So I, I appreciate I've been very, very lucky there. The, about being compromised, what I try to do is I don't, I try and keep my wine and my whiskey stuff quite separate. So I feel like I am my I work for a whiskey retailer, not a whiskey brand. And so I'm not going to write about rival whiskey retailers. I'm not going to say that the company I work for, Master and Malt, are, you know, I'm not going to write a something b- bad about them. And I don't really write comment about the whiskey industry because I am in the industry. Whereas with wine, I think of myself as outside the industry um, and not wholly independent because as a wine writer, it's very hard to be, you know, I do take press trips, I take samples, that kind of stuff. But I think as a wine writer, I am a, you know, I'm a pretty independent voice. There's There's a lot more wine writers who are much more compromised and actually directly take money from wine producers, which I think you shouldn't do. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to be the one throwing th- throwing rocks in, in glass houses. But it's a very, very tricky one because th- there is so little money in the actual writing that almost everyone has to do stuff that involves getting close to retailers or producers. Simon and I both read a moving piece that you wrote about your uncle Peter. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, why you wanted to write it and also about obviously the effects of addiction and and drinking to excess. I wrote that piece for the Mogford Prize, which is a a prize that for food and drink writing. And I entered it and it didn't get, get, go, go anywhere. And I offered it to so many publications and they all turned it down. And I even sent it to a, to a, to a magazine called The Modern Drunkard. And I thought, this is right up their street, you know, a piece about being drunk. Um... 
And so I just put it up on my blog and I had such a great response. And I entered the Fortnum and Mason Drink Writing Awards with that piece and something I'd written for the fence. And I won. And the judges just said it, they'd never made anything like it. And they couldn't really think of any reason why or, or of any better writing they'd read on drink that year. So I, I was the obvious, obvious winner. So that was wonderful. And it was a very, very personal piece about... Um, readers could read it but about a uncle who wasn't a real uncle he was my aunt's boyfriend who was the most entertaining big-hearted you know fascinating man but also deeply tragic alcoholic and when I knew him he was sort of healthy but clearly drinking himself to death he was one of those people who had that sort of depth of melancholy in them that you just wonder where it came from or what could possibly f fill it. So he was a, a kind of hopeless case, to be honest, and I can't quite see how he could have done anything but drink himself to death, sadly. I think there are people like that. But then I think there are also, especially in my industry, people who, because the alcohol is so I'm sitting here at my desk and I have four bottles of whiskey on my desk that have been sent to me by whiskey producers to to review and with that kind of temptation around I think it is incredibly difficult and I think lots of people do succumb to alcoholism especially brand ambassadors who are sort of salesmen for mainly for whiskey companies so their job is to basically drink with clients their job is to go out there and go oh we got this new whiskey you know it tastes of and i think you need to have iron will not to end up drinking far too much and a lot of them end up in trouble and it's one of the kind of untold stories of the drinks industry that there are there was a big thing recently about people who worked for Perno just saying that the kind of culture of their job meant that it was really hard not to not to drink too much so I I, I, I I'm very aware of this and I try very hard not to drink too much so for example this week I didn't drink on Monday Tuesday Wednesday I had a book launch last night I'm very lucky that my wife is Californian and very abstemious so so I don't have that if I if I was married to someone who enjoyed wine as much as I do that would be dangerous so yeah I'm just aware the whole time not not to not to have that extra glass don't have a glass of wine after nine o'clock you know just you know if you've got people around that's fine but just if you're on your just me and my wife I try not to drink try not to drink before six and after nine so I have this little window where I have like a couple of glasses of wine and I think I'm reasonably healthy I hope I am. Are you conscious, or is I suppose the wider drinks writing industry conscious of a, of a cultural shift as well? In that, you know, young people today drink a lot less than than their forebears did, and I suppose also within journalism, there's just a lot less boozing. It's a kind of feature of the show that we get senior journalists come in and tell us war stories about you know everyone being completely wasted in newsrooms in the eighties and things. But I mean, how does it feel to be writing about alcohol at a time when? At it, you know, the position of alcohol in our society is shifting as well. Yeah, that's a very good question. The alcohol industry is absolutely bloody terrified. Hence all those things like Seedlip or Gordon's Zero, where they see that their customer base is, is shrinking. 
So they're pushing for something called premiumization, which is basically to get the people who still are drinking to spend more, which is, is quite clever. But yeah, I sometimes feel that I might be a bit of a dinosaur because I, I do remember the, the days of, you know, not the heyday of Fleet Street, but the, but the kind of noughties. There was still a, there was still time to have a drinking culture, whereas nowadays there isn't. But I just hope that, you know, wine and whiskey are fascinating culturally. And I think, I hope that there'll always be people who will be interested in them, not just because they provide a lot of pleasure, but because they have these very rich stories attached to them. So sometimes I think, yeah, I should have picked, you know, something like tech would have been a better thing to specialise in. But, you know, I've I've made my bed, so I'm going to going to lie in it we're coming towards the end of our time so it's a final question from me what does what does the future of lying in that bed look like what 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 um projects are on the horizon or for you i've got a very very big project coming up which i can't talk about at all i'm afraid but could potentially be be huge so i'm really excited about that my book has just been published and seems to be selling really well it came out yesterday so I'm now trying to think of what I can do after that. So what would be the follow-up to an English wine book? So I have a few ideas for that. But apart from that, I'm actually just really, really happy with where I am professionally. I have a day job four days a week that I really enjoy that pays the bills. And I have outlets like The Critic that let me write how I've always wanted to write. I've kind of, it's just been a dream job writing for them because I can do that telling stories thing rather than recommending six rosés to have with your barbecue. So at the moment, I'm probably happier professionally than I've ever been. Um, so you know, touch wood. I just wanted to, as we finish, to return to that piece you wrote about Uncle Peter, which I really did find very moving. But there's a point that fascinated both Rachel and I, which is about hair. So we both touched on this line that you had that, that alcoholics can have surprisingly good hair. And I plunged down something of an internet spiral to try and ascertain why this was. And there is a diversion of opinion here in that some, some literature says that alcoholics have bad hair and it can be brittle. And I wonder if, if you could just, in the time we have remaining, <laughs> dive, dive into this whole issue of, of hair. Is it improved or... or rendered shabby by by drinking i I don't know i read somewhere that it the alcohol suppresses the testosterone so and and i think high testosterone sometimes leads to hair loss in men which is you know why i've got such a magnificent barnet but i don't it's just something i'd noticed like sort of winos on the street would often have I'm not great hair, you know, it wasn't like kind of Estee Lauder sort of hair, but it was, it wasn't like David Ginolar in the 90s, but it would be thick, you know, and far thicker than you'd expect of, you know, a, a man in his 60s who, 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 who was an alcoholic. I don't know what the truth is. Maybe, maybe that, might, that might, might be a, a magazine article in the future. I'd love to know what the answers for women are as well. I shall read with great interest. Not that I plan on becoming an alcoholic, but even still. Thanks very much, Henry, for your time. I'm wishing you all the very best with your book and everything going forward. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Henry Jeffries. He's on Twitter at Henry G. Jeffries, and his newsletter is henryjeffries.substack.com. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Henry? It was great to have a drinks writer on the show. I don't think we've had anyone that specifically writes about 
drinks and drinking culture uh, before. So it was great to venture into pastures new. Um, I enjoyed hearing um, about the jump he made from publicity to writing. And I also thought it was really interesting in terms of the limits he puts on himself, re-drinking and writing. And then, and then also the position between working within the whiskey industry and, and then writing about about drinks um so i feel like we covered a lot of ground and yeah it was it was fascinating how about you i also enjoyed the sort of tales of book publicity back in the back in the mid noughties um and then also that that piece we discussed with him about this guy who'd become an alcoholic which which i thought was was moving and rather touching and as as he sort of alluded to a kind of shadow that that exists in that world of of writing about alcohol so um yeah great to have broaden things out a bit on the podcast and an appropriate episode to put out on uh, Boxing Day. Anyway, Rachel, what have you been up to? Uh, so we are pre-recording this uh, a little bit ahead of time. So by the time it comes uh, into listeners' ears, I will be in Australia. Hopefully reading lots of us. And married. And married, yes. And crucially married. But um, I have mostly been doing wedding prep um, and I've been watching a lot of New Girl, a sitcom that finished quite a few years ago. Um, while I've been doing that. So that's the main thing I've been consuming. But I hope by the time everyone's listening to this, I will be sat on a beach reading lots of Australian fiction. I want to catch up on Helen Garner, whose books are being republished at the minute and is having a bit of a moment. So yes, I'm looking forward to that. How about you, Simon? I'm in France. I've been continuing this fairly savage French uh, ski instructor training course, which is good, but I feel I feel slightly broken by it that has been good and i had to go up to switzerland to to meet the people i'm doing this ski race with next year which was uh good but also slightly um slightly intimidating so i feel i feel a little bit like this is all very exciting but i'm on this like treadmill that goes on for another five months and there is part of me that'd be quite nice when that's that's over but there we go um and i have had um zero cultural input i've been too tired i've listened to some uh, German podcasts to keep my keep my other language going. That's not nothing. Well, it isn't. It isn't <laughs> nothing. That is true. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.